Morning, family. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Um, you know, the in the grief seminar last week, they showed a clip from Moana, which is my favorite Disney movie. And it's my favorite Disney movie because it's about a girl who is deeply insecure and conflicted about her the purpose of her life. And she's dealing with all of that. And as she finds healing in that, as she finds some answers, then she goes and immediately shares that healing with someone who's dealing with hurt and anger. And they don't have the same problem, but when she got her healing, she shared it with someone else. And it didn't come from a place of superiority because she knew she was in it too. And I love that. And I feel like that's where we're at as a family. That's what God has called us to do, that we're broken and we're confused and we're insecure. And then God heals us up and he patches us up and he gives us some answers. And then we get to share that with someone else who's maybe doesn't have the exact same problem, but is hurting as well. Um, and that's what we're all about. And that's why we're a family that says this is where the power of God meets the problems of this world. It's where it connects together. Um, so that's what we're about. If you're a part of this family, then I'm excited to be with you. If you're not a part of this family and you're just here as a guest, then welcome and you're here, a part of the family today. Um, and we're glad that you're here and I hope you find some of that healing through this as well. Um, but in, in light of that, and because that is our purpose, we've chosen equipped as our theme. And it comes out of Hebrews 13, and, and it's, Hebrews 13 is written to a group that had been through a really hard time. They were dealing, things didn't go as they had expected. They converted to Christ, and they started following God, and things got worse. And in their life circumstances, even though their hearts were being healed, and their souls were forgiven, their outside circumstances got worse and worse. And they're like, what gives? And they're just having a really hard time with what to do with that. And so he talks to them, and he says, look, God has given you everything that you need. And that the things that you need aren't of this world, um, but there's more to it. And so we talked about, as we went through last week's message, some tools, four tools that God gives us to equip us to do His will, no matter what our outside circumstances look like. And he, we talked about how He gives us His Spirit, and we said, let's think about abilities and gifts, things that God gives us that we're able to do that we couldn't do without Him. He gives us um, His discipline, right? He gives us hardship and difficulty, which doesn't feel all the time like a gift from God, but if we allow him to use it and we allow him to train us through it, absolutely is a gift from God and brings us through on the other side stronger. Um, we've talked about how he gives us his word, as a, he equips us with his word. He gives us time to study and meditate and, and learn more about him and learn more about what we're supposed to be and, and how to get there. Um, and then he gives us his church. He gives us leaders to follow. He gives us people to come into our life and, and tell us truth that we uh, maybe don't always want to hear but need to hear. Um, and he, he gives us people to encourage us when we're down and, and telling lies to ourselves. Um, and so all of those things are tools that he gives us. And the point of equipping us with all of that is so that we can do his will. But we also said that equip, his equipping requires a good attitude, that, that we can have different problems. That, you know, we can say maybe we have an assistance problem or an aptitude problem. Maybe we don't feel like we have enough help, but in this body I would say you probably do. Or we don't feel like we're capable, but in this case, God gives you the ability, so it doesn't matter what you're able to do. You're able to do everything through Him. And so most of the time, what hangs us up, most of the time, what stops us from being equipped and being able to do God's will is an attitude problem. It's how we choose to receive all these gifts. When He gives us hardship, how do we take that? Do we rejoice and say, okay, it's not the most fun thing to go through in the world, but God's going to do something really cool through this? Or do we pout and run off and do our own things and, and run back to the patterns that we had before? Right? When God gives us, well, we'll get into some of these as we go, but um, what attitude do we bring that? So last week, our focus was on God's gifts. 
And this week, our focus is on our attitude. And what kind of attitude adjustments do we need to make in order to make the most of and be equipped by um, what God has given us, all these gifts that God is letting, letting us, us have and, and laying at our door? Because every gift that God gives me can be negated by my bad attitude. Any gift that God gives you, any blessing that He gives you, you can kill off and you can destroy with a bad attitude. You can waste with a bad attitude. You know that um, because that's how it works with, with gifts you give to other people, right? When you give you know, your kid to something or you give a friend something and they just spit on it you know, and they don't care or they re-gift it you know, the next time you're around and you're like, I recognize that. I know where that came from, right? That, that ruins the gift. It ruins the whole thing behind it because you were excited to give it to them. And that's how God feels when, when we neglect or have a bad attitude in that. And there are things that God orchestrates and he, he puts in your life and he's like, man, I've, I've been preparing this person for this time and you know, I'm so excited to, to put it in place for them and I've, I've put this person in their life because all the things they've experienced over the last six months is going to give them the perfect answer for the hurt that this person's going through. And you come into work that day, and that person comes into work that day, and your attitude's terrible, and you don't even see them. And all that work that God did, that He spent months preparing to put that person in that place with you for that time, is all wasted because you didn't have the attitude to see what was going on and, and where God was trying to lead it. And so, we're going to go through four examples of God asking His people to do something, and then pointing out attitudes that are standing in the way. We're gonna, there are also four things that... In, in ministry, as I've gone and been in ministry for a little bit, these are the top four things that I've seen have led to either people not growing the way that they could and should, or um, people just outright leaving and, and not coming back. And so these are things that, um, that if we don't adjust them, then they're going to lead to us either not growing or walking away. And so I hope that we'll make a commitment individually and together to change these attitudes so that we can do God's will and, and be what He wants us to be. Um, so the first attitude adjustment I need to make if I want to be equipped is I need to commit, I will say, I will adjust a lazy attitude about learning. I will adjust, and I, it says I will, and I hope you don't just think all of these are just me. I need to hear them all, but I hope you'll say I will adjust a lazy attitude about learning. Um, we get comfortable where we're at, right? And this happens with all kinds of growth. Um, you, you see a need and you're like, man, if I don't do this, something's going to be all, I'm not going to fit in that outfit anymore, right? I'm not going to have that friend anymore. I'm not going to pass this class. And so now it's panic time and we make this huge life adjustment and we change our diet or we change our, our calendar or we change how we start operating. And then you, you survive, you pass the test, right? Or you overcome the conflict or you, you know, you, you shed five pounds, right? And then you're like, okay, we're good, right? You go back to all the things you were doing before. You get comfortable. You, you just like, okay, I did the emergency you know, service to it, and now I, need, now I can just relax. And that's how we can be in our attitude with God as well, our relationship with God. We can run to Him because we're afraid because our life is falling apart. And the second the pieces start coming together a little bit, we can get lazy, and we can get complacent with where we're at and stop trying so hard. Um, in Hebrews 5, 11 and 13, it says, we have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you've become too lazy to understand. In fact, though by now you should be teachers, you still need someone to teach you the basic truths of God's Word. You have become people who need milk instead of solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is still a baby and does not yet know the difference between right and wrong. 
You know, there are a lot of reasons that things can be hard to understand. And there are things in Scripture that are hard to wrap your head around. When you're talking about spiritual things, and you're talking about things that are maybe above what we can see all the time, there's some things that are hard to understand. But that's not what he's talking about in here. When he talks about you've become too lazy, the phrase that's used there means willfully dull. Like you, have, you, are, you are stupid on purpose, is what he's saying. Like you have, you have made choices that have led you to not understand this. Right? This isn't because it's too challenging for you. It's not because it's something that's over your head. It's because you've made choices to not understand this that have led you to not understanding that. In, our, in my business, um, the, the job I'm in, we buy cars. And so we have the same resources everyone else has. There's only so many things you can look at to know what a car is worth. Um, but we spend a ton of time researching it and making smart decisions. We try anyway. But every once in a while, you'll, you'll be competing, you'll do all this research, and you'll make an offer, and then someone else will come along, and they'll look at one thing, and they'll offer way too much, and, and we just get blown out of the water. And then we look like we were shortchanging somebody. And so what we say to reassure ourselves is, you can't compete with stupid. Right? Like, that's our thing we say all the time. Like, well, you can't compete. You know, what can you do? We lost that one. Good luck losing money on that car. Right? Like, it's fine. And there's times when you look at, people have looked at my life, I know, and they've warned me and they've warned me and they've said, man, I've given you every opportunity to make a good decision here. And I thought, man, I'm glad that you thought to tell me that. I'm going to go do my own thing. And they, I'm sure they threw up their hands and said, man, you can't compete with stupid, right? Like if, if you tell him, like you're, if you do this, you will fail. And he says, no, nah, I don't need to go to class, right? Like that's, that was my move, right? And so it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. I was willfully ignoring the things that, that were shown to me that would have helped me grow. And when the problem is when you refuse to learn and you refuse to grow and you, you intentionally avoid the things that help you do that, then not only do you pull away someone else, but you don't have as much to offer either. And so, you know, think of it like a clingy child, right? If a child is really clingy, then, then the mom can't do all the things that they need to do. Right, it's in, and when they're older, it's fine. When a when a six month old is clingy, you're like okay, that's healthy attachment. That's what you need. But if your twelve year old is clinging to your leg and crying every time you leave the room, now we've got a different discussion. Right now, you should be grown enough not only to free up your mom, but you should be helping the other little kids. Right, like you should be grown enough. I'm really concerned because at this point, you should be helping others, not just clinging to the person who, who was providing for you before. And it, you know, when, when he's saying, what he's saying is that until you adjust this attitude, you're going to be stuck in this, this perpetual cycle of immaturity, right? You're going to come to church every week and you'll be around, but you won't really change. The problems that you had in life before will be just as overwhelming as they were before you came around. And the conflicts that you had in your life are going to be just as difficult. And the, 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 things that you craved before, the vices that you gave into before will be just as, as troublesome because the, the milk alone won't let you build your body enough to change. The basic stuff, the, the stuff that you're wanting to be told over and over again, if you can't move past it, is not enough to help you grow. If you give a baby only milk, they thrive and they grow. But if you give a 12-year-old only milk, they don't do so hot, right? You need more at that point. Your body's developing. And there's an urgency to dealing with this, to asking yourself how you've been growing, right? There's, there's comparisons that you can make. And we don't always want to be about comparing to others because ultimately, you know, it's, it's God who tells us what we're worth. But there are some warning signs sometimes. 
Um, Crystal tells a story, um, and she gave me permission or didn't object to me telling this one. Um, so when she was in middle school, she was really insecure about her height because she was a giant. She was so much taller than everybody else, and all the little boys were intimidated by her, and you know, she was just so much taller, just really tall person in, in, in like sixth grade. And then by high school, she was, I mean, as you can see, like a lot of people have passed her, right? Like it's, she's not the giant anymore. And, and you can just look and compare and be like, man, like the, you used to be really tall, but now it looks like everybody's grown past you. And I say that because we need to ask ourselves a question. Have you been here so long that you've watched people come up and, and be baptized and, and submit their lives to Christ and then grow, and now they're taking on things, and they're helping to lead people, and they're helping to teach people and, and provide while you're still sitting there doing the same thing you were you know, when they first came around. And again, it's, it's not about finding our worth by comparing to others, but if that's true, if you're still sitting there while others are growing, then it's something we need to look at and say, well, if we're both drawing from the same resources, why are they getting different results? And a lot of the time, it's because of our attitude. It's because we've stopped trying. It's because we've stopped putting in the effort and we've just kind of coasted and gotten complacent. So we need to adjust our lazy attitude about learning. Um, God's antidote for laziness is diligence. That's, how, that's God's cure. When we get lazy, God says the cure is diligence. And diligence is careful and persistent work or effort. So when we choose careful and persistent work or effort instead of choosing laziness, we get a different result. You know, we won't accomplish anything with our own work. It's not that we need to be better. It's that we need to rely on God more and then work alongside Him. And I find this in, in any relationship, really. It's easy to get lazy in any relationship, um, but when you put in the hard work and you do it on purpose, then it gets better and better and better over time. In Acts 17.11, it says, These were more noble than the Thessalonica, those in Thessalonica. It's talking about a people in Berea and... Um, Paul had gone from city to city to city, and if you read about the, you know, Paul's adventures in Asia Minor and in Greece, um, he had a pretty rough time. He was doing the best he could. Um, he preached faithfully. His, his whole heart was just to share the gospel with as many people as he could. But over and over again, he ended up at places that got mad at him for what he was sharing. And they would reject what he said, not because it was wrong, but because that wasn't what they wanted to hear. And then he goes to this place called Berea, and everywhere else he'd been, he'd been stoned, thrown out of town, imprisoned, beaten. I mean, you name it, he'd been through all of it. And he gets to this town called Berea, and he preaches to them. And you've got to imagine, I mean, you're conditioned at that point. If everywhere you go, you get beaten up and imprisoned, you're probably just waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? Like you're just waiting for them to pull out the stones. You're like checking for pockets. You know, you're just seeing what's coming, just so you know. But he finds something different. And in Berea, it says they were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the, world, the word with all diligence and searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. They received it with a careful work ethic. They received it with diligence. They didn't just get the lesson and leave. They didn't just crumple up their notes and throw it in the trash on the way out, right? They, they took it home and they studied it and they thought, is this true? And if it is true, what does that mean for me? And because of that, they had a different result. Because of that, they were able to put it to use and grow. And we still recognize them as the model for what it looks like to be a follower of God, to receive his word well. In Hebrews 6.11, it says, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end 
so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. The Hebrews had, been, had become discouraged because things hadn't gone the way they'd hoped. And it's easy to get lazy when you're discouraged, right? When you're trying to do something right, when you're trying to do something good, you know, if you're discouraged in your marriage, and no matter what you try, it seems like it's not working. When you're discouraged in overcoming an addiction, when you're discouraged in your job, if you're discouraged in your job, the easiest thing in the world is just stop trying, right? Just why would I put in the effort when it doesn't seem like anybody appreciates me anyway, right? Why would I put in the effort when I just keep falling down over and over again? And it was understandable that the Hebrews were discouraged, but he also understands that unless they work through that fatigue, unless they change that attitude, then they wouldn't ever overcome. They wouldn't ever get over the things that were going through, they were going through. And he knows that the more the, they want to be more, they want to receive the blessings that God has for them. But without some work, it wasn't going to happen. Right? It's not that we have bad hearts. It's not that we don't want it, but we got to put in the work. In Proverbs 13, 4, it says, The lazy person craves, yet receives nothing, but the desires of the diligent are satisfied. See, the lazy person and the diligent person both want a lot of times the same thing. The only thing that separates them is the diligent person has the attitude that says, I'm going to do the work that's necessary to get there and receive the reward. So laziness blocks us from being blessed. So don't let it stand in your way. Change that attitude for the, about laziness um, for learning. So the second attitude that we need to adjust is I will adjust a critical attitude toward my leaders. I will adjust a critical attitude toward my leaders. We see this attitude all over the Bible. In fact, it is almost impossible to find a really good leader in the Bible who doesn't have a group of people actively criticizing them. Almost every great leader in the Bible has one group or multiple groups that are actively trying to tear him down or tear her down. Over and over again you see it. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is in the same way. 2 Corinthians 10.10, Paul's writing to a church in Corinth that he brought to Christ, that he started this church. He's the reason any of them are around. And he says, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Right? That's brutal. If you're insecure about your teaching, right? Like it, he's like, yeah, you can write fine, but man, you see him in person, he's a dud. Right? That would crush. That'd be brutal. It's like if you're a musician, right? And they're like, man, he sounds fine on CD, but don't go see him live. It's awful, right? Like that would, I'd never want to play again, right? That'd be it. That'd be the end of me, as in, and you're welcome for never doing that. But, um, <laughs> but that's brutal to say that. And Paul's just trying, this is a guy who was handpicked by Jesus to come to this people. This is a guy who was so relentlessly faithful to what he'd been called to that he suffered all kinds of things to go to these people and love on them. He'd been beaten and bruised and everything else. Even Jesus Literally, God's gift to humanity was criticized and killed, right? All of the great leaders, no matter how good their hearts were, and sometimes especially because of how good their hearts were, were mocked and, and beaten and killed. At one point, Paul asks, he says, have I become your enemy for telling you the truth? Has telling you the truth made you my enemy, made me your enemy? And that's a tough question because it's, it, it's how we feel sometimes, when someone comes and tells us the truth. And what we find is that the problem isn't the message. The problem is the attitude of the one who's receiving it. And we need to be careful about having a critical attitude toward our leaders. It is God's eternal plan 
to put people in your life to help you keep fighting and to help equip you and, and get you ready for what's to come. But if you're actively working against that, then you're just a tool for the one who's been trying to discourage people forever, right? You're just being manipulated by the one whose sole goal is to pull people away from God. And that's not who I want to be used by. That's not who I want equipping me. So God's antidote for a critical attitude is remembering. That's the goal. That's, that's how we get past being critical is by remembering. Now be specific with that. See, Hebrews doesn't, doesn't say outright that they were critical of their leaders, but you can see the resistance to them in what he writes. And so he says, because you're not obeying, this is what you need to do. In Hebrews 13, 7, he says, remember your leaders who taught, spoke God's message to you. Remember, consider, reflect on how they lived and how they died. The outcome, the result of their way to life. And, and copy and imitate their faith. He says, remember those who, who taught you the message. Crystal and I have spent cow, have people that we've spent countless hours working with, that we have been through the worst times of their life and the best times of their life. We've had people that have called us <clears throat> their moms and dads because of the influence that, that God has allowed us to have in their life. And within months, we've had those same people treat us like enemies. We've had those same people turn and, and say, you don't want what's best for me. And all we can say is, don't you remember? Like, don't you remember February? Like, recently, I don't even have to say the year. Like, it was, it was not that long ago that you were literally <clears throat> curled up in fetal position in somebody's living room, and I laid down next to you, and I looked you in the eye and said, we can get through this. Don't you remember the time when your mom tore you apart emotionally when you went home and you came back and Crystal just sat there and cried with you for an hour and made you some coffee and, and just built you back up piece by piece? Don't you, am I your enemy now? Really? Don't you remember? And we've had other people that have come and they've, they've, they've come back. They left and they came back and they said, you know what I remember? I remember that when I was acting out and I was hurting myself and I was hurting other people, you were the only ones who cared enough to say something about it. Even when I didn't like it. Even when I, I spit on you for doing it. You were the only ones who came around. And I remember that. There's a, a marriage retreat we're going to soon. Um, some of us. And, and uh, the teacher there said, one time it's a quote he's famous for. He said, I can put, with God's help, I can put any marriage back together as long as they remember when it was good. If they can't remember when it was good, then there's not a lot I can do. But if you can remember when it was good, then we can bring you back. That's what it's like. That's what it takes to, be, to get out of this critical spirit. Because the critical spirit can pop up really quickly. If you've been in any workplace ever, you know that that's true, right? The, the most natural thing in the world is to complain about everything around you, and especially about your boss. <laughs> right? That's the number one thing you want to complain about because they're the ones, when you want to chill, that keep making you do the work, right? In the church, it's no, we're still humans, right? They're humans at work. We're humans at church. The first people a lot of times to take the heat are the ones who are sacrificing the most to try to help you be who God wants you to be. They're the ones who take the heat. And the way to get past that is to remember. To remember that with your leaders in the church, and to remember that with Christ. Because it is also easy to be resentful about the demands that Jesus puts on your life. It's also easy to say, you want all of it? 
And Jesus says, don't you remember? That's literally what we talked about, right? Like it was, I hid nothing from you. I said, like, I died, you're going to die, right? We're both going to come up and we're going to be on the same page, right? And we said, yes, all of it, have all of it. I don't want any of this mess. I need you to have it all so that it doesn't look like this anymore. And then like six months later, we're like, you want that? He's like, yes, all of it. That was part of all of it. We talked about this, right? We have to remember. We have to remember who Jesus is. We have to remember that He gave all before He ever asked us for all. So to do that, every week we come together and we remember that He gave all. And we take bread and we take juice. In His case, it was, it was bread that He broke and wine that He passed around to His followers. And He said, when you take this, I want you to remember that this is Me giving all for you. Before I ever asked anything of you, I committed to giving everything for you. So we're going to take communion together. It's set up in the back. We'll celebrate that together and remember our leader. um, And then we'll come back together and finish up. Um, Father God, thank you for giving all. Thank you for respecting your leader, God, enough that um, in in the form of of Jesus, that, that you showed us what it was like to to be completely at your, at your mercy. Um, Father, and your mercy is what we need today. And so I pray that, that as you try to build us up, as you try to give us every blessing, as you have blessings that are just waiting to be poured out onto us, that we wouldn't hold those back with our attitude, that we wouldn't be critical of the way that you're leading our life, but that we would be thankful and remember who you are and remember where you brought us from. Help us to remember that this morning as we celebrate communion. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we need to adjust our, our lazy attitude toward learning. We need to adjust our, our critical nature over our leaders. We need to adjust a prideful attitude about myself. I will adjust a prideful attitude about myself. Um, I need to decide that when it comes to me, when it comes to how I look at myself and how I receive what other people say about me, that I won't be the authority in my life. Um, In 1 Corinthians 4.18, it says, I know there are some among you who are so full of themselves that they never listen to anyone, let alone me. And again, when he says, let alone me, this is the guy who taught them about Jesus, right? He says, you won't even listen to me. He says, they don't think I'll ever show up in person. All right, pride deceives us. It leads us to feel stronger than we are, and it blinds us to those who are trying to help us, right? It, It leads us to look at a situation where all the pieces of our life are falling apart, and to look at that and say, I got this, right? Have you been there? Have you been in a place where you can just look at bit by bit, relationships crumbling and things going wrong, and you look at all of that, and you're like, no, I'm good, right? Somebody comes and helps you, like, no, no, I got this, I got this. Clearly, everything's under control. And anyone else who's who's a third party can look at it and say, you don't got this, right? Clearly, you don't have this. In Proverbs 13.10, it says, through overconfidence comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. That when you ask for help, when you ask for guidance, you are more, then that's when you're wise. And so his antidote, God's antidote for pride is humility. That's how we get past pride, is we, we accept humbly that maybe someone else has something that is worth saying. That maybe someone else can see something about me that I can't notice because of all of my baggage and because of everything else that I'm going through. Maybe there's things that I can't recognize that someone else can see better, even if that's just God. And James 4.4, 4, it says, 
As the Scripture says, God is against, He opposes, He resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. If you have the attitude when your life is falling apart, when things aren't going well, that says, I can handle this, God is against you. He is actively working against what you are trying to do. He's not against you as a person, but He will absolutely try to get in the way of everything that you're trying to accomplish. Because the things that you're doing are to shield you from Him. And He will tear those down. He doesn't want anything between you and Him. And let me tell you, what, God, what Scripture shows us over and over and over again is that it is a lot better for you if you choose to be humble as opposed to God doing the humbling. Right? He'll do it either way. Right? But if you let down your wall, that's a much better experience than you throwing up the wall and God having to tear it down. Right? That's not as fun. I've tried both. I don't recommend it. Right? It's not good. But he loves you too much to leave the wall there, right? If, if my kid was going through something and they locked themselves in the room, there is no door that could keep me out, right? I would find a way, right? But it's better if they don't put the door, right? They'll suffer less if you leave the door open, right? If you don't lock yourself in the room, you're going to get the help a lot quicker, right? But we spend all this time hiding in dark corners, and putting up as many barriers between us and God and the people that would call us out on it to where when we finally do call out for help, they got to bust through all this mess that we've created just to get to us. And we've got to be humble enough to open up the doors and be open about what we're going through and say, you know what, I don't got this. And that's embarrassing to say. And I like to look like the person who's got the answers. And I like to look like the person who's got it together. But I don't. And I need someone to come in and tell me some hard stuff. And, and, and be there around me even when it's embarrassing. See, pride keeps me from being equipped and it keeps me from being an equipper. I can't do either one. I can't get help and I can't give help when I'm prideful. It shuts it all out. I've shut off the things I didn't want. I didn't want the confrontation. I didn't want the accountability. Right? I didn't want the shame or the guilt. But it also keeps me from the help and it keeps me from being help. Empowering a prideful person, and God knows this, empowering a prideful person is like giving $1,000 to a drug addict. They'll spend it, but it ain't going to help them, and it's not going to help anybody else. Right? If you are being prideful and you're shielding yourself off from everybody else, the last thing God wants is for you to build up this amazing reputation in the church and, and be known as this awesome person and, and then be torn down you know, when it all falls apart because it was all fake. Right? And so he's going to actively work against what you're trying to do. But if you will humble yourself, if you will humble, your, humble yourself and, and open yourself up to God and who he puts in your life, he cannot wait to work through that. He will boost you up. There's a, this is a bonus verse in 2 Chronicles 16.9. It's not in your notes, but it's one of my favorite ones ever. Um, Brent introduced me to this one, and, and I haven't gotten it out of my head since. Um, it says, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth, in order to strengthen those who are, whose hearts are fully committed to him. right? He's not just stumbling across people. He is actively looking. Will anybody be up for doing what I've called them to do? And if you are, I'm looking for you, and I'm ready to get to work. right? God cannot wait to work with those who will humble, humble themselves enough to just come up and say, I'm ready to grow, and I'm ready to do whatever that takes. Um, my brother's not thrilled with being the center of attention, but I'm going to use him as an example anyway. Um, so a lot of you guys have met my brother Aaron. Um, Aaron's been going through some health issues, a lot of other hard times. Um, 
no one likes being confronted, um, but I drove down to Mississippi. I'm like, Lynn and I went down there. We're like, hey, like, you need some help, man. Like, this isn't working. You're, you're stuck. And he came up here, and his words were, what I'm doing isn't working, so whatever you tell me, I'm just going to try it. Right? Like, it was just like, that was it. It wasn't like this long, eloquent letter he wrote me. It was just like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's like, whatever. If you say it, I'll try it. I, at this point, let's do it. Um, and he's come when it hurts, and he's come and he's opened himself up. And I, I just like, I really respect that. And, and I want us to be like that, where we just say, look, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, like just God said it, and, and apparently I need to hear it. And it's uncomfortable, and it's different, and it hurts, sometimes even physically. Um, but I'm, it's what God called me to, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to let down the walls. I'm going to let the help come to me um, because it's searching for me. So we need to adjust our prideful attitude about ourselves. And then finally, I must adjust a selfish attitude about my behavior. I must adjust a selfish attitude about my behavior. Your behavior is your, your life and your time, right? It's, it's what I do and who I am, and I need to be less selfish about that, about my life and about my time. Paul writes to the, the church in Corinth, and they had gotten real selfish about their time and about their life. In 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, he says, I don't praise you, because when you come together for your meetings as a congregation, you do more harm than good. It is worse that you get together as a church because of your attitudes. Because they would come together for communion, and when they did communion, they did it as a big meal. And the people who had a lot of money would eat, they'd bring this huge feast for themselves, and they'd eat till they were sick. And then they'd wrap it all up and they'd take it home. And the people that were poor and didn't have as much would go home hungry because they didn't have enough to eat in the same church, at the same table. He says, I would rather you not meet as a church than have that go on and call it church. Right? Your attitude can be so disruptive and selfish that it's better that you not meet. Selfishness turns communion into a meal to satisfy a few and leave others hungry. It, it turns a gift from God into a competition for who can get the most praise for themselves. Right? That's what, another problem they had. They had a, some of them could, had gifts like um, they could speak in other languages and it was very impressive and, and it was meant to reach people who spoke those languages, but instead they did it for show and, and for attention. And he said, I'd rather you not have any spiritual gifts than, than use it like that. God's antidote for this, his, his cure for this selfish attitude is service. You see it over and over and over again. When someone is being selfish, the first thing out of God's mouth is, you need to go help somebody. And it may be completely unrelated. You might be selfish about money, and, and he won't tell you anything about money. He'll say, hey, go, go help that guy move. Right? And you're like, what's that got to do with my money problems? He's like, I don't know, just go help that guy move and then come talk to me. And you come back, you're like, oh, I get it, it's not about me. Right? Like that's what, over and over again, that the solution is service. Get involved, get involved in a way, sign up for something and then show up for it that demands that you get the focus off of yourself for a little bit. Don't sign up for the thing where everyone's going to see you. Sign up for something, do something that gets the focus off of you, that is uncomfortable, that is unnatural, that requires that you have to go ask someone for help in how to do it, right? Where you need some guidance, you can't just hero your way through it. In 12-step programs, they don't expect any kind of lasting sobriety if you're not sharing what you've learned. That's why they encourage people who've been through those programs to become sponsors, because if you share it, that's when it lasts. 
right? In Philippians 2, 3, and 7, it says, Abandon every display of selfishness. Possess a greater concern for what matters to others instead of your own interests. And then it says about Jesus, He emptied Himself of His glory by reducing Himself to the form of a servant. Even for Jesus, being equipped meant serving. Part of Jesus Himself being equipped was Him having to serve and get rid of any temptation to get glory for Himself. And if Jesus needed that, I need it times 20, right? Like, I need all of it. In Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, it says, So Christ gave Himself, Christ Himself gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. If the members of the, part of the body are doing their part in serving, then we will be built up. And if the members of the body are not doing their part, the body will not be built up. It works both ways. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of Him who is the head that is Christ. From Him, the whole body grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You know, it's not just, you know, I know in there he talks about apostles and prophets and teachers, but did you know that in the early church, they had a, they had a conflict because there were, there were a lot of Christians that were Jewish and there were a lot of Christians that were Greek and there were all these Greek widows because the, a lot of the early Christians were Jews that weren't getting anything when the Jewish widows were being taken care of. And it wasn't intentional, it was just they didn't know that these widows were around, and so they didn't take care of them. And so the, the apostles, the leaders of the church, the teachers of the church go, and they assign some guys, and they say, I need you guys to go and serve these widows, let's address this, let's make sure they're taken care of, and I want you to serve food to them so that we can serve by teaching. And he uses the same word in both, right? It wasn't that you take this little job so we can do this big job, them preaching was the same job as them going serving tables to widows. It's all the same job. It's all us serving. It's just us doing the work. And when we do that together, the body of Christ is built up. And when the body of Christ is built up, then many people come into the love of Christ. And you see awesome transformations. And the enemy to service is not your calendar. It's your attitude. Nobody gets more than 24 hours a day. We all get the same amount of time in a day. The difference is we choose what we you do with those hours. Right? You choose what's important. And are we doing the things that are important to us? Or are we doing the things that are important to Christ? What are we putting first? What goes on the calendar first when you build your schedule? Right? What choice do we make? And it's all about our attitude. A selfish person chooses what they value. A disciple chooses what pleases God. And if we'll change our attitude, God will equip us and He will fill up our days with purpose and with passion and with joy and you will be thrilled with the results. Even when your surroundings aren't the best, even when your circumstances don't get better, you're going to be bulletproof because God is driving you and equipping you and empowering you. Not literally bulletproof. Don't test it, right? But the winds, when the winds and the storms come in this life, they can't touch you. And people will look at that, and there is nothing more attractive than someone who has been beat down by this world and is still standing, right? We make movies about that, right? We make movies about people that, that go through horrible things and come out on the other end victorious. That's what we get to do every day in our lives. But only if 
we'll have the attitude to take advantage of the blessings that God's trying to send our way. So you've got a communication card um, in your bulletins that you can fill out. Um, for our members, we're about to pass around some buckets to take up an offering um, that helps with the, the nuts and bolts of doing work as a church. Um, but for our guests, really what we'd love is instead of that, if you just put in um, a card that says, you know, what do you need? What do you need to be equipped with? What attitude have you been battling that's built up these walls between you and God that we can help you tear down? Because all we are are insecure, conflicted people that have been shown some truth, trying to help people that are angry and difficult, right? That are having hard times. We're taking our hurts and our healing and sharing it with other people that are hurting so you can have healing, so that you can share it with other people that are hurting. That's what it's about. That's why we're doing what we're doing. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for forgiveness in times where my attitude has not been what you'd want it to be. Father, I pray for forgiveness for the times when you've tried to help me and I've thrown up barriers and I've said, no, I've got this. I pray for forgiveness for the times when I've been too fixated on what I wanted to do with my time and ignored what you told me to do with my time, with your time. Father, I pray that you would help us to change our attitudes, that we would embrace what you're calling us to, that we wouldn't hide from you, but we would run to you with open arms, that we would be the eager children that see their dad at the door and run to him and, and jump into your arms and say, what are we going to do today? Father, help us to be that. Help us to have that attitude. In Jesus' name, amen.